Turn with me to Ephesians 5. We're only going to cover one point, and then we have the Lord's Supper. But to cut over, we're looking at verses uh, 15 through 21, Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put one in your hand. Ephesians chapter 5, and this is verses 15 through 21. We really got through the word circumspect, and we looked a little bit. We'll, we'll be spending our time the rest of this morning uh, on point number two, or uh, truth number two, if you will, uh, in this passage, verse 15 through 21, redeeming the time. So if your Bibles are up, I'm going to reread the text, and then over uh, the course of ne next week, or potentially the week after, we'll, we'll have covered all seven of these points. Uh, but Read, with me, read along with me as I read it from verse 15 through 21, Ephesians 5. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual song, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to one another in the fear of God. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even where we're at in this text. You divinely know what we need at this moment of time as you're telling us to redeem the time. And Lord, we pray that even this morning you would make precious and divine use of every second. You already have. The worship was so awesome. As we see here in the text, singing is, is important to you. And if it's important to you, it's important to us. And Lord, we just ask that you would uh, use this time now to speak to our hearts, draw us nearer to you, each and every person. You know what each person needs, including me speaking. In your name we pray, amen. And by the way, five years ago today was my first Sunday where I was no longer a bivocational pastor. Five years ago today. So the Lord, yeah. Which must be why my car broke down, I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> Five years to the day, and the car won't start. So, uh, but since then, I've been 100% devoted to pastoral ministry. Uh, it has not been easy in any way, shape, or form, but I really thank God He's placed me here with you guys who I love very much, and, uh, and I'm thankful uh, to be the pastor here at Calvary Chapel Richmond. I'm thankful for uh, the men and women He's put in this ministry and put in this church family, and, and, and you guys uh, play a huge role uh, and me doing what I can do, and hopefully uh, vice versa, that we are able to help one another. But I just wanted to say that because uh, that may not be a big deal to you, but it's definitely a big deal to me because I didn't think I'd make it five months. So the fact that I've made it five years, I'm really, really thankful for, and, and I really do uh, appreciate all that you guys do. Uh, getting back into our study here with um, where we want to just look at uh, primarily number two this morning, redeeming the time. Uh, but a little brief review, just so you understand where we had left off in this word circumspect. If you were here last week, uh, you caught a few minutes of this. And uh, if you're here this week for the first time, 
Uh, that's not a word that we use on a regular basis. Most Americans today, I've talked about the fact that, uh, sadly, <laughs> the American vocabulary is going like this. Those of you in the education world, your teachers, you, you would know. You go back and talk to a teacher in the 50s versus a teacher today and the amount of vocabulary. You know, Shakespeare was known for his incredible vocabulary, right? C.S. Lewis was known. They had genius IQs. Now, you might have a genius IQ, but God wants us to know that words mean things. And this word circumspect, what we looked at last week, uh, is not a word that you hear often, but what it means in the Greek, akribos, it means accurately and diligently that God wants us to walk the Christian life accurately and diligently. What does that mean from a spiritual perspective? Well, if we know the scriptures, we are going to make life decisions based on the accuracy of the scriptures. Thy word is a lamp unto my what? Feet. Feet is what we walk on, the path that we're on. If the word is giving us accuracy, and God will never give us anything but accuracy, his, his word is faithful and true, then we're going to make those decisions based on the accuracy, the truth, the purity of God's word. But we also have to do it diligently, right? Diligently. You know, when you're driving your car, you have a speedometer that gives you accuracy. But whether you pay attention to another or not is based on our diligence, correct? Well, officer, I never took the time to look at the speedometers. Therefore, I get off free, right? He says, no, you had the accuracy device. You chose not to pay it any diligence. So God gives us that, uh, that free will to, on the one hand, Search the Word and make sure we understand it's accurate. Sit under teaching of the Word, gather together and discuss the Word, know the Word, build our lives on the Word, on the rock, but also be diligent there to make sure that what we know is what we also do, what we also live out, what we also invest in. And so we looked at how it's important for us to have this circumspect life that is based on the accuracy of God's word, but also that we're diligent in serving the Lord. God says he's a rewarder of those that what? Diligently seek him. We were talking about this on Wednesday night, and we talked about it on Friday, but I want you to hear it again because it's so important for all of us to understand. We were in the book of Proverbs Wednesday night, and the Bible talks about in the book of Proverbs that God delights in the prayer of the righteous. He delights in the prayer of the righteous. Now, if God says he delights in the prayer of the righteous, do you think he's telling the truth or not? Well, of course. He wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. He delights in the prayer of the righteous. Now, we talked about this Wednesday night. We talked about it in our men's Bible study Friday. What it doesn't say is God only loves the righteous who pray. Or he only loves the righteous if they prayed. It doesn't say that. And we talked about why this is important from understanding how God works, the nature of God. Some things God explains about his nature. By the way, some things we cannot and will not know about his nature until we meet him face to face. Amen? People that are trying to figure out every detail of God, that is like comparing a grain of sand to the universe. Mankind can't explain the nature of God. But here's what we know about God. He calls those that belong to him his children. He cares about his children. You parents, we talked about this, but I want to make it again one more time. If your children don't do something that you think they're capable of, 
they are making a C plus in a grade. But you think they could make an A if they would apply themselves. Does that mean while they're still a C student, you don't love them? All of a sudden, they take your counsel, they take your advice, they do what you said, they make an A, and you say, now I love you. <laughs> Finally, because you've reached your potential, now I love you. That's not what God does. What he is delighting in, he delights when we do and become and reach the potential that he's called us to. Amen? That is what the Lord does. So he delights in us having a circumspect life. He delights in us taking the word of God and walking in it diligently. He delights in us having a prayer life that is flourishing, that is growing. It doesn't mean if you had a dry season where you said, hey, truth be told, the last month my prayer life is a... That's not a word, but that just that gives you an idea, right? <laughs> but speaking of vocabulary, that, that's not a word. But you understand what it means. But God would say, hey, you're still mine. I love you. I'm calling you out of this lack of prayer life. I'm calling you back to doing the things that I've asked you to do. For, for God's benefit? No. We don't add anything to him for our benefit. And so we want to look at um, this next thing uh, in the text, uh, verse 16. See that you, uh, verse 15, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but wise, but verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. This Greek word, redeeming, exagorazo, um, exagorazo, it has a couple of meanings. We talked about this as well, just a quick review. Uh, the first of the two meanings, if you take the composite meaning of this word, the first part of it, it means to a payment to recover something from the power of another. So time can be under the power of someone else, or something else. Now, we know Satan has a lot of power over people's time, doesn't he? We know that we have a lot of power over our own time, and the Lord says that it's going to have to be recovered and placed under the power and the authority of the Lord. The second part of the meaning is, um, the second part is to make sacred use of. So when you take the two together, we have to recover time from where it's being held ransom, and we have to make sacred use of it. So God says, here's the time that you otherwise wouldn't have. I've purchased it through the cross, and I'm giving you this time. Now I want you to make sacred use of the time. And this is why Paul is using this term, redeeming the time. Understanding that um, we look at this through a spiritual lens, our time, uh, the use of our time, it's going to have to be gained back, and it's going to cost us something and we're going, to have we're going to have to have eternity in mind uh, for this time to be used in a sacred manner. And the use of time has always been an issue. Uh, God gives us uh, only a finite amount of time to invest. Um, if you look around today in the world that we live in, here in 2017, uh, time is as important now as it ever was. But have you noticed that today, in our lifetime, Everyone is incredibly busy. The word busy has probably been used more since the year 2000 than all previous generations combined. And with the explosion of social media and everything else, the word busy is used even more. 
everyone's incredibly busy, or at least everyone truly believes they're incredibly busy, just ask about anyone. After I had uh, studied for this passage, and after I'd already put this mess together, I'm riding in my car, riding out of my neighborhood, and I noticed the church closest to our house, their, their series for the next four-plus weeks was crazy busy. Literally, right near my house. I'm like, well, aren't we all thinking the same thing here? Everywhere, it's just nonstop busy. It's this nonstop pervasiveness of busyness. Uh, by the way, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, the end of the book, you know, Daniel, I believe, speaks to the spirit of busyness which would be in the end of the age because he said men will run to and fro. It, it seems what he's describing is, is not only the, the speed and knowledge would increase, which we're seeing today, but men would run to and fro almost with an aimlessness, just like a ping-pong ball going back and forth. But much of this perpetual business is self-imposed with no eternal importance and highly questionable value uh, in the here and now. The vast majority of busyness is not actually the Father's business and the work that Jesus referenced. Would you agree with that? That the vast majority of the business is not what Jesus was doing, not what he was asking the apostles to do. It's not, being, it's not time that's being redeemed. It's often time that's just being lost. It's being squandered. I read an article back in 2012. It was the year that I left... Um, corporate America to be a full-time pastor. I read this article in 2012 in the New York Times by, uh, by a writer by the name of Tim Kreider called The Busy Trap. I didn't agree with the whole article. I rarely agree with a lot of things in the New York Times, and I didn't agree with the whole article, but I found it interesting that even non-Christians could write an article that so succinctly identifies the drain on today's modern schedules and the culture driven priorities of today. Culture-driven, not scripture-driven, not spirit-driven, not Jesus-driven, but the culture-driven priorities of today. And here's what he writes. This is his words, not mine. If you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy. So busy crazy busy. It is pretty obviously a boast disguised as a compliment. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. Well, that's a good problem to have. Or better than the opposite. Notice, it isn't generally people who are pulling back-to-back-to-back shifts at the ICU or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. No, what those people are is not busy, but tired, exhausted, dead on their feet. It's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they take on voluntarily. Classes and activities they're encouraging their kids to participate in. They're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety because they're addicted to busyness and the dread of what they might have to face in its absence. He goes on later in the article, Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy and completely booked and in demand every hour of the day. New York Times, not a pastor, not, not a Bible teacher, 
And I think he nailed it. It's not just how busy everyone is. It's also what we can suddenly make time for when it matters to us, right? When it matters to us. One of the quotes that I live by, and I have to remind myself numerous times, you've probably heard this quote. I, I truly live by it. I remind myself it's not a scripture, but it actually bears out plenty of scriptural principles. It's this. If it's important, you'll find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. If it's important, you'll find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. It's very true. It's so many things. We can kind of say, I don't have time for that. Start putting that through that lens. And ask if what is asked, if Jesus said, hey, I want you to stop and pray. If you say, Lord, I don't have, I, I don't have time for that. I, don't, I, I would make time for that. But, and the Lord says, back to us, it's not important. Right? It's not important. Um, think of this related to the commands of Christ. His uh, command for us to disciple others, to gather in fellowship, to serve the hurting. When I was in corporate America, and some of you still are, and, and I'm glad you are because you help us have a church, and so thank you. But, um, but when I was in corporate America, and I spent 16, 17 years in corporate America, I had clients whose schedules were jam-packed with ultra-important meetings. Ultra-important meetings. Deadlines. Things that had to be done. But somehow, magically, their time freed up to go with me to the NCAA Final Four. These are real things that happened. I'm not making any of these up. They found magically time to go with me to the NCAA Final Four, the Masters Golf Tournament, NBA games, dinner at Morton's Steakhouse. And I could go on and on and on. But everything was magically, poof, the calendar cleared for these. Remember, the other things were important, but getting the Masters or the NBA is even really important, right? So the things cleared up. But we're all guilty of finding me time, aren't we? Understand many of us, I understand that many of us truly have really big things on our, our plate. Some of you have aging parents. Some of you have three kids in college or high school, or you've got uh, work demand. There's, there's a lot of big things on our plates. You might have an illness that you're dealing with, a chronic illness, some responsibility, people demands, uh, demanding situations that we find ourselves. And we have to have time for those things. Those things are real. Those things are legitimate. But in the midst of all those things, I know for me personally, I still find time to watch a game that matters to me. I do. I somehow can rearrange everything and find the time for that. I'm not speaking for you. I'm speaking for me here. Somehow I find the time. And by the way, it isn't always wrong to have downtime. You know that Jesus one time told the apostles to get away for a little while and rest? Downtime isn't necessarily a bad thing. We need rest to get back out there and do the important things. Vacations, some leisure time, watching a game with the guys, maybe fellowship, ladies going out to dinner together, some time to rest, watch a funny movie so the whole family can just laugh at the end of a heart week. Those things are valuable things. Those things are good. Those are all good things. <coughs> but leisure time all the time is not a good thing 
the American culture tells us, if you're not working, you should be doing something for yourself. And the balance, God is saying, no, 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 no. There has to be a balance in all of this. It can't always be the things that are only uh, about us. I'm speaking of discretionary time, by the way, for the most part, discretionary time. But the same would also be true of discretionary income, which most of the world doesn't even understand the concept of discretionary income. That's a modern thing that we uh, sometimes say, well, we have that discretionary. You know, we're in El Salvador. You, we're working just to eat. Discretionary really doesn't even factor into it. But we have a time and place, much like the Roman Empire, where we have these things that we can choose to either redeem or not redeem. But if we can't find the time, think about this, if we can't find the time for things like prayer, if we can't find the time to gather together to pray, if we can't find the time to open God's Word together, I'm not talking about just on a Sunday morning, but at other junctions of our life, and we can't find the time in investing in lives, in meeting needs, in living, uh, helping the lost, something's wrong in the body of Christ. And this is, I just met with 15 pastors up in Charlottesville, uh, and I'm meeting with another like 40 this coming Thursday. And all of us, you know, we're looking to say, what are we doing with the time that we have? What are we doing to make sure that we're laser focused on the things that Jesus wants us focused on because he really is on his way? And Paul wrote to redeem the time. Why? Because the culture always has a way of eroding our understanding of time and eating up our time. The culture around us, we're all in that boiling pot. <clears throat> Always eating up our time that leaves very little for the work of God. And unless we're alert, unless we're honest, the Lord, and really having that relationship with the Lord, we won't see it. We won't even see that the enemy has allowed us to have all of the available time that God's given us eaten up. Going back briefly to being circumspect, if we know biblical truth and we value it, and we know that truth, then we live by it, and we know the commands of Christ. We not just know the commands of Christ, we love them and we intentionally follow them. Then we're being spiritually accurate. If we know and follow those things, we're being spiritually accurate in that diligence of walk. Our theology, our understanding of God, if it's correct, and we really do believe the theology, we say, hey, this is what the Word says, and I really believe that, then it directly impacts our decisions and our priorities, or at least it should. Wouldn't you say that the Word of God should impact our priorities? Not just impact them, I mean write our priorities. The Word of God should write our priorities, should really say this is what I live by. We might even pray about things that others would never even, would even dawn on other people to pray about, you know? You might shock your coworkers and say, hey, I'll be praying about it. What? Why would you need to pray about that? You either know it or you don't know it, right? Because we truly believe that God guides all of our ways. We believe that we need God to guide all of our ways. If our theology is inaccurate or it's just head knowledge, may even be accurate, but if it's just head knowledge, uh, we know those things, but there's no real deep belief in it. There's no real conviction in it. There's no genuine application of it. Well, then that won't have the same impact. Let me, let me show you a visual representation of this. Uh, for many people, and this is an extreme example, for many people, for many of Americans, this is exactly where their theology and their priorities intersect. We say they don't intersect. Precisely. 
They can compartmentalize. This is how you could be, uh, here's an extreme example. This is how you could be in the mafia and make sure you go into a confessional booth and do, one, you know, do, do a crucifix, say something, and go right back out there and extort people, right? Because your theology sits over here, but the priorities of your life are over here. And for many, many people, this is the same way they treat time. This is what I know about God, but it doesn't affect anything about how I live for God. Do you see what I mean? That priorities in theology don't intersect at all. But this isn't our call. Our call as the church is that our priorities and our theology are overlaid with one another. That we would have a big impact when they come together and look more like this. Right? Our theology, our understanding of what God has told us, understanding of the life of Christ, understanding of being a disciple, our understanding of taking up our cross and following him, that they would have a big impact and that our theology and our priorities would line up. They would line up with one another. That's a hedge against things like divorce, isn't it? Right? It's a hedge against your kids falling away. That's a hedge from you know, being angry at someone holding a grudge. Say, well, no, I have a priority to, we just read this in Ephesians, is to keep the peace and to endeavor the spirit of peace and to love one another. So that's a priority in my life. I have a priority to make things right. All of these things. And now I understand, and we should all understand it from a practical sense. I want to understand, if you take a look at this, because I'm a very, uh, by the way, I'm sorry, this is your second Venn diagram in a, in a couple of weeks. So you're getting a, getting a good taste of the kind of things I used to do. But anyway, so this Venn diagram here that you see the overlapping. When you take a look at this, you'll understand that there's some things on the outer edge here that theology doesn't necessarily touch in one sense, and I want to explain why that would be the case. Do you realize that there's some things that every person on earth should have as a priority, whether they are a saved person, born again, or not? Let me give you a couple examples. Eating, sleeping, breathing, right? Exercise. All of these things, these are important. Everyone needs some range of sleep. Some of you need uh, eight hours sleep. Some of you only need six hours sleep. Some of you need seven hours sleep. That is not a waste of time. If you stop sleeping, you will stop living, right? Not a waste of time. We all need to eat. We all need to drink. So some of our priorities, if we say, I make it a priority to eat three healthy meals a day, that may not be any different than your unsaved neighbor. So some of the things are the same or should be the same because we all have the same basic elemental needs. But, from, the, from a practical sense, some, uh, some of those things will be the same. And yet, spiritually speaking, we'll redeem time when our priorities and our theology come together. We'll redeem time in ways that the world does not. If we're yielded to the Holy Spirit, if we're yielded to the life of Christ, and let me give you an example on this as well. Those of you that are married, those of you that are married, would you say you love your spouse? You better say yes if they're sitting beside you. <laughs> Would you say you love your spouse? You say, yes, I love my spouse. Okay, so if you say you love your spouse, because I've, I've actually heard some Christians set up straw man, straw man argument for God. Well, if, if everything about the Lord is important, that's all I would do. I'd only be at the church 24-7. All I'd be doing is witnessing 24-7. I wouldn't do anything else. That's a straw man. Let me show it to you why, why it's... 
In, totally invalid when someone kind of makes that kind of excuse. Here's why. If you say you love your spouse, I'd say back to you, hmm, do you spend every single waking minute with your spouse? No, uh, I was at work for 10 hours a day. Oh, then you don't love your spouse. Because if you really love your spouse, you wouldn't have gone to work. You would not have spent 10 hours away from your spouse whatsoever. You would not have done this. You would have been with them 24-7. You would have never gone anywhere. We well, said, well, that's not practical. How are we going to make a living and actually have a marriage? Right? See, God sees through all of the things that we come up with. He sees through all that and says, look, the reality is, of course, there's going to be times where if I love Jesus, I'm still going to have to sleep. If I love the Lord, I can still do something that is just kind of, hey, I'm sitting with some guys just kind of hanging out. But, but, there's other times that we would hear the voice of the Lord, that we would prioritize him calling. And if your spouse texts you, you don't blow it off and say, hey, I don't care who that, that's, hey, your spouse keeps, texts you 10 times, you're going to respond? No, 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 no. I don't respond, I don't respond to that person. But I do love them very much. I just don't respond to them. I love them, I just don't respond. Well, why would don't they feel like they're not connected to you or something like that? You're trying to explain to this person. You might want to respond to your spouse. They're asking you to pick up the milk. No, no, I don't. Well, I love them, but uh, we have no communication on that realm, period. Doesn't make any sense, does it? But when Jesus is contacting us, are we listening? Do we stop what we're doing and say, I make time for the Lord? He's knocking on my heart. Am I redeeming the time to say, Lord, I hear your voice. I hear what you're calling me to do. I am in relationship with you. Would people be able to say, say, you say, do you love your spouse? But would there be enough evidence for people to say, you know, I've watched you. You do, you do give your spouse priority. You do have a marriage that people can see is healthy and you make that time. Would people be able to say the same thing about our relationship with Jesus? Would people be able to look at your life and say, you know, I've never heard you talk, preach, or anything else, but I can tell that Jesus is a priority in your life. Would people be able to tell? They should be able to tell with our marriage. They should be able to tell with our walk with the Lord. Every moment we ever spend with Jesus, brother and sister, is redeeming time. Do you agree with that? Every moment we spend with Jesus is redeeming time. Time we spend investing in other people's life, that's redeeming time. When our time becomes more about others and other people, more than ourselves, more than non-living things, that's time redeemed. Having coffee with a brother and sister just to show some love to them, encourage them, listen to them, that's not wasted time. Said, I don't have time to have coffee with you. I got bigger fish to fry. Jesus would, you know, Jesus, you would just think that his life was fairly important. There were so many times where people would run into his day and he would allow his schedule to be changed. Woman at the well, someone with leprosy. Today we say, well, yeah, but Jesus, you had, you had all that kind of time. I got real important stuff here. <laughs> That's what you were, you came to do that stuff. I, I, I came to balance books or do this or do that. No, we, we have to let God impact our time to redeem that time invest in people. I reach out to people not because I have nothing better to do. I could fill my time just like you. I reach out to people because God reaches out to people. How about you? 
We reach out because God has reached out. And why does Paul say that we must redeem the time? What's he say? Because the days are evil. That's what he says. The days are evil. What does that mean? That he's not saying that things were it's remarkably different then than they are now. In one sense, they are, because we're getting closer. Lots of things are changing. Do you know that uh, extreme weather has increased 400 times more since 1970? Days are getting different, to say the least. But Jesus, he speak, when he, uh, what Paul's speaking of, he's saying evil time, he's saying this present age, the present age, the present age of time that we're under, uh, the time from the, uh, from the garden till Jesus comes back is this evil age, this present time, the days being evil. They were evil in Paul's day. They were dark in Paul's day. They were difficult in Paul's day. And they will get more so as the return of Christ approaches. All around the world, all over the world, Satan is using people to plan the death and destruction of others. Wouldn't you agree? You watch what's going on in Europe. You see what's going on in North Korea, in the Middle East, all over. So you see that Satan has people diabolically headed in a direction to destroy mankind. Because Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's using his time maximum, isn't he? Satan? He's using his time for maximum evil. We have to counter by using it for maximum glory to God. The darkness wants the souls of men. That's why Jesus said in John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day. The night is coming when no man can work. We only are given a short period of time, a little dash between, mine says 1969, dash. We haven't filled in the other end of the blank yet. We're given that little dash to work while we have the light, Jesus said. The days aren't just evil, but the days are urgent. Life is short. People are dying. People are hurting. I'll be at a funeral at the end of this week. I didn't think I'd be at that funeral when I talked to that person just a few weeks ago that I'll be at this coming Friday. Life is short. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist in the 1800s, late 1800s, he was sometimes criticized by friendly Christians for his methods of evangelism. But you've got to love one of his responses one time. He said, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't do evangelism. <laughs> Isn't that great? He had a way with words. He just was, God gave him a, just here's the bullseye, hit it. He wasn't highly educated, but the Spirit of the Lord would give him what to say. Brothers and sisters, we, we have one lifetime to work for the Lord, to invest in others and to redeem time. Amen? One lifetime to do it. Take the time now. Don't wait. Don't wait till it's some kind of disaster. Take time to write that note to someone and encourage them. Take the time to go have lunch with someone who needs to be encouraged. Take the time to give a card of saying thank you for your service and ministry to someone out in the children's ministry. Take the time to send a little gift and a note of encouragement to someone in the mission field. Take the time to invite your neighbor to church. Take the time to tell somebody, hey, God really loves you. Go visit someone in the hospital. Do something. Jesus is going to someday say, I gave you all this time and you couldn't find any time? Well, I was really, really crazy busy. Jesus said, you were crazy, all right, <laughs> for not heeding my word. Amen? Amen? Let's redeem the time. Let's close our...
eyes, bow our heads for just a moment. Father, we thank you this morning that you found the time, that you've made the time to step into our time by sending Jesus to die for our sins. And Lord, we just want to take the next few minutes to remember the time that you suffered on our behalf to make a way for us to be rescued from our sin, from this fallen earth, and that we could spend eternity with you. Lord, you're not speaking condemnation to any of us here, but you are exhorting us and warning us and lovingly saying, come redeem time with me. Make time for others. Lord, forgive us for our excuses. Forgive us, Lord, for our apathy. Forgive us, Lord, for our cynicism. Forgive us for our self-focus when we should be focused on you, our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith, and fixed on others. We ask for your forgiveness, but we also ask for your help. Lord, help us. Sometimes we don't know how to manage our time, and we desperately need your help that we make wise use of it for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.